Now, have you ever been looking for something only to find that it's right in front of you? Do you know what I mean? You, you've, you've got that search for the keys in your house only to find that you've got them in your hand or, or in your pocket or you go searching for your glasses only to find that they're actually on your head. Uh, in my office uh, that I worked at for a couple of years, um, they used to have a term for sort of looking and not finding when something was right in front of you. They used to call it man-looking. And, uh, you know, you'd open the, uh, the filing cabinet or whatever and they, they, you'd come back and say, oh, I couldn't find it. And they'd say, oh, did you look or did you man-look? And, uh, you know, it was right in front of us. Of course, if you're a fan of films, there's the, the obvious examples of things like The Planet of the Apes, the original film where they miss the fact that actually all the way through the film they're still uh, on planet Earth right until they see the Statue of Liberty. We're very good at missing what's right in front of us. And as we look at this passage, that's exactly what the Pharisees do. They miss what's right in front of them. But before we judge them too harshly, we need to make sure that we're not missing out either. All of us are very talented in different ways, aren't we, at missing what's right in front of us. And that goes for us this morning. Too often, don't we, we judge by appearances and miss things that are right in front of us. Too often we miss out because we forget what's right under our own noses. Well, the Pharisees here are going to take this to another level, as we see in our first point. The kingdom is easily missed. Have a look again at verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come... He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, all there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees here asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus' answer is that the kingdom of God is already in the midst of them. The kingdom of God is already there. The kingdom is right there in front of them. Now, to understand what he means by that, we need to understand two things. Firstly, what is the kingdom of God? And secondly, how is it right in front of them? So firstly, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is wherever God's reign is acknowledged, wherever the king truly rules. So the kingdom of God, then, is not like an earthly kingdom, though the Pharisees seem to think that it was. In the Old Testament, looking forward to the kingdom, we saw there would be something that would be characterised by compassion, by justice and righteousness. The kingdom would bear the characteristics of the king. It would be where God would rule, God would reign, and people would live under his rule and blessing. So that's what the kingdom of God is when we, we talk about it in the Bible. But how is it then that it's right in front of them? Well, there's lots of confusions about this question. Firstly, because that word in the midst, in some translations, it's translated inside. The kingdom of God is within you, is inside you. The word can be used both ways. It can happen in English too. So if, for example, we said we've got faith in this church, it could mean that we've got faith inside each of us, or it could mean that we've got faith uh, in our church. It can either mean within you or among you, depending on how you use it. Well, here, though, it must mean in the midst of. It would be so strange for Jesus to have spent all the chapters that we've been looking at condemning the Pharisees, saying how they're really wrong on the inside, only then to say that the kingdom of God is inside them. So really what he's saying is that the kingdom of God is amongst them. But 
that's, um, that's what we understand by it. So he's not saying that it's inside them. Instead he's saying that the kingdom has been right in front of you all the time. So there isn't going to be some place called the kingdom of God that you can visit. That's what he's saying. No one's going to say, look here, look there. It won't have its own entry on TripAdvisor. If I could put it that way. The kingdom of God is not a place that you go to. You can't see it in that sense. But you can see the king. You can see the king. And the king is standing right in front of them. And if you think about it that way, even asking the question is a blatant rejection of Jesus as king. If they're asking when the kingdom is coming and yet the king is here, they haven't really understood who Jesus is, have they? It would be like going to the royal wedding that they had last week. Uh, You know, I don't know if you saw it on the TV. And walking up to Prince Charles and saying, hey, Prince Charles, hey, Charlie, when's the royalty coming? Can you see how that's an insult? Can you imagine Prince Charles' response? Well, excuse me, I'm royalty. Sorry, I shouldn't do the accents for that. (laughs) Excuse me, I'm royalty. I'm here. The royalty are here because I'm here. See, by asking Jesus when the kingdom is coming, they've totally missed the fact that Jesus, the king, is right in front of them, in the midst of them. And on one level, you can understand it, can't you? Jesus didn't look like a king. He looked like the son of a carpenter. He wore no royal robes. He had none of the trappings of royalty that we saw at the royal wedding. No carriages or crowns. No big wedding dues. And yet we know, don't we, that appearances can be deceiving. And we know also, don't we, that we have our own expectations of things. That means often we dismiss people who don't meet our expectations. You see, outwardly Jesus looked unimpressive. Insignificant, easily missable. But in reality, he's the king of the universe. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. And we've certainly seen that by the actions he's been doing in Luke's gospel. As he's ruled creation like only God could. As he's shown compassion. As he's shown wisdom like only a true king could have. He's given us a glimpse of what God's rule truly looks like. How amazing that would be. But the Pharisees are so set in their own expectations that they can't see Jesus for who he is. They can't see the kingdom for what it is. And the same is true today, isn't it? Jesus is easily overlooked. Just another religious leader. Just another prophet. Just another power play. But Jesus is so much more than that. And the church as well, where the kingdom is now seen, also gets overlooked, doesn't it? It's the place where God's character is seen, as the Holy Spirit helps us grow in our likeness of Christ. It's the place where Christ rules by his word. But like the kingdom in Jesus' day, it's easily overlooked. Nobody this week will be writing an article in The Guardian or The Telegraph saying, church meeting in Otley. It's not some spectacular event. Let's not face it, even the the Wharfdale Observer won't be printing that this week. The church is easily overlooked, isn't it? Because of the same things, we don't look outwardly impressive. We can seem quite insignificant. 30 people in a town or two towns of 15,000 people each. We're easily missable, but that's in part the nature of the kingdom now. We take on the character of the king who was overlooked and missed. 
But the kingdom is coming. Jesus started it and it carries on to this day. But if the kingdom is here, then what is Jesus talking about in 22 to 30? Well, the kingdom will be unmissable. So it's missable now, but it will be unmissable. Let's read 22 to 25. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will uh, not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus now has moved on from the Pharisees and he's talking to his disciples. And he seems to give them part of the answer, really, that the Pharisees were looking for. He doesn't talk about the kingdom of God here. Probably not to confuse them too much because he said the kingdom of God is already here. But the language, if you think about it, is remarkably similar. He tells them of the days of the Son of Man. Now, what is that? Well, it's another way of talking about the kingdom, but in the future. There can be no mistake in it what it is about, as you might do with the kingdom of God, because the focus of it is the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man. Now, if you've been with us on a Sunday evening, we've been looking at the names of Jesus. His favourite one for himself is that term, the Son of Man. And the main thrust of the idea is found in Daniel 7. You'll see it on the back of your notice sheets. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. A prophecy looking forward to this son of man figure. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when it talks about the day of the Son of Man, it's that day when the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven, is given dominion. It's looking forward to that great day when the Son of Man would overcome the kingdoms of the world and reign in glory. But there's one slight problem. In one sense, that has already happened. You see, Jesus did ascend into heaven through the clouds, into heaven to stand before the Ancient of Days, to stand before God the Father. And he's now seated at the right hand of God, ruling the world with all power, dominion and authority. The best way probably to understand this is that in the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward and talked about one day. The day of the Lord, they usually called it. The day when the Messiah would come. The day when justice would be wrought. The day when the world as we know it would end and eternity would begin. They saw it like a peak off in the distance. If you've ever been climbing in the mountains, sort of a peak off in the distance. But if you've ever been climbing in the mountains, often you find that as you get closer, you realise that there's several peaks on the way. And it's a bit like that with this. Within... The idea of the day of the Lord, actually, there are, there are days, if you like. That's sometimes why he uses the word days of the Son of Man. It's a longer period than you might think. But within that, there is the day of the Lord, the end of the world as we know it. And that day, Jesus says, will be unmissable as that day comes. A day that they will long to see. 
You see, whereas the kingdom of God may be at first hidden and unimpressive, that last day, the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, will not be so. The day when the Son of Man is revealed, he'll be shown to the world in verse 30. Unveiled for all to see. All will see him. All will know. There is no chance that you'll miss this day. Any more than you could miss the flood in Noah's day. Any more than you could miss the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day. This will be a day that all eyes will see. All knees will bow. And it will be a terrifying day for some. As Jesus returns and brings judgment. But a day of rejoicing for others. As they're brought home to their Lord Jesus. You see, the disciples there in verse 22, they long to see it. It's something good for them. But he tells them that in the meanwhile, they're not to be deceived that it's already happened. This final, final day has come. The day of the Lord is not going to be some two-bit sideshow that you go watch at a roadside. That will somehow get reported in some crazy newspaper. It's not going to be preceded by some new Jesus figure. Who's going to come? You know, who's getting the newspaper? You know, man claims to be second coming of Jesus. No, you will not miss it. So Jesus is saying, don't chase after things like that. Don't chase after people telling you that it's already happened. Because it's not. You will not miss it when Jesus returns. He's saying, don't, don't go try and find me on some obscure mountain. I'm not going to hide myself. For only some people to see. When I return you will know. Like lightning flashing across the sky. You will not miss it. So he's saying don't chase after that now. Because actually in the lead up to this. The final days will be surprisingly normal. Have a look at verses 26 to 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." See, the whole point here is that that disaster was completely unexpected. There was nothing visible that they could look at to see that this was going to happen. There was no great sign in the sky, although with Noah you could argue there were rain clouds, which should have been a bit of a clue. But there's, there's no big things happening. Life is going on as normal. And the normality of life has seduced them into thinking that nothing would ever change. Nothing would ever happen. And then the flood struck. And then fire and sulfur rained from heaven. Life was just normal until then. Are we being seduced by the normality of life? Lullabied into thinking that everything's basically okay. Day follows day. As that 90s song goes, nothing ever happens. Nothing happens at all. The needle returns to the start of the song. And we all sing along like before. We forget, don't we, in the normality of life, that we live in a supernatural world. We forget that the world has an expiry date. We forget that the day of the Son of Man is coming. So now Jesus teaches them how to live in the day of the Son of Man. So our final point, so don't miss it now. Verses 31 
to 36. Let me read them to you. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, what he's talking about here clearly can't be the exact moment when Jesus returns. Because if you think about it, why would it matter in that moment whether someone turns back from their field or goes back into their house? By that point, it'd be too late to do anything, won't it? Jesus will return and the world will end. And what would it mean to lose your life on that day? That doesn't seem to make any sense for the, the final, final day. You see, the lesson here is not instructions for the apocalypse. The instructions here are how to live in the light of the apocalypse. Jesus' statements here are remarkably similar to what he says to his disciples elsewhere. But it's not about surviving Armageddon. It's about how to follow Jesus in the light of the end. So if you flick back a few pages in Luke and go back to Luke 9, just keep a finger in Luke 17, but if you flip back to Luke 9, Luke 9, 23 to 26, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said to all, if if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does does it profit a man if he gains the whole world um, uh, and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Do you see there, he's talking about how to live in the light of what's coming. And that means actually now not seeking to preserve our life, but to give our life daily by taking up our cross. Equally in Luke 9, 57 to 62. And they were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here he's explaining what it means to follow Jesus now. It means letting go of all else and not turning back. And that is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. The event is going to happen. Jesus is going to return on this final day. So for now, drop everything and follow him. We're told to remember Lot's wife. She seemed to be escaping the destruction, didn't she? She fled from Sodom. But in the end, her old life was more dear to her and drew her back. In the end, she did turn back and was turned into a pillar of salt. He's telling his disciples, as you approach the end, as you keep living in these days, don't turn back. 
Even if things are hard, don't turn back. Even when you're longing for the end, don't turn back. Why? Because the day is coming when there will be a separation. One will be taken, one left. Now it's not here referring to a rapture of believers. It's referring to that final separation. One to heaven, one to hell. One taken to safety, one to everlasting destruction. And notice that these people are together. It's not going to be that it's just some small random sect of of Christians somewhere that are going to be taken living in some obscure compound. Two will be in a bed together, either husband and wife or family. A bond that close will be broken on that day. And notice that the people are doing normal things. It's not saying that one group is praying while the other group is partying. Actually, it's not saying that one is at church while the other's in a den of iniquity. No, one lot's in bed and the other lot's preparing supper. That's what it's really saying. It's that normal, mundane, everyday life for both groups. And then the end comes suddenly and splits them apart. So if they're doing similar things, if they're together, then what makes the difference? Why do some get taken and others not? Well, what makes the difference in the day of the Son of Man is what you've done with the Son of Man. Are you following Jesus? Or are you tempted to turn back? You see, the passage finishes with a bit of a weird question from the disciples, doesn't it? Seasoned readers of the Gospels will be used to this idea that they're a little bit uh, crazy and ask quite strange ideas. You see, the Pharisees asked when the kingdom was coming. And the disciples now asked not when... But where? Have a look again at verse 37. And they said to him, where, Lord? Now, you might be thinking this is a bit of a weird question. Well, Jesus has already answered this question in response to the Pharisees. It's not any where, is it? But instead of repeating himself, he tells them a short proverb. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What he's saying, though, is that you can tell something by its massive effects. It has on other things. See, in the hot desert, a small bit of roadkill that dies actually could attract a huge number of vultures around in the sky. You could see it for miles, not because the thing was big, but actually because of the effects that it has. Though the kingdom itself will seem insignificant, its effects will be far-reaching and unmissable. This phrase, though, takes on extra significance when we remember the context, though, of Luke's gospel. This whole section, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the final time, where he will soon be a corpse. He's going to the cross. Do you see that back in verse 25? But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Actually, it's the cross that he's talking about. Jesus' death is the archetype of what we've been talking about, the the ultimate example of something easily missed or overlooked. On the surface, it looks insignificant, a wooden cross, a wounded corpse. Yet the effects are huge, cosmic, tremendous. It's actually a corpse that's at the centre of all this. It's Jesus' death that means the kingdom will come in the end. It's Jesus' death that holds the key to not missing out on that coming kingdom. Because if we miss out on the cross, we will miss out on the kingdom. If we move away from the cross, we move away from the kingdom. 
So we're not to chase about looking here and there for the new, newest thing. Here it is, look there. If we have the cross, we have the kingdom. If we have the cross, we will inherit the kingdom when he returns. So we are not to turn our back on the cross. We are not to turn our back on Christ. And so we have two challenges this morning. The first is to cling to the king. In him we have all that we need. We have no need to chase after other things. We have no need to cling on to other things that only tires to this world. We have no need for anything other than him. The second thing that we need to do this morning is not be seduced by the normality of life. Life will go on as normal until Jesus returns. But life in the age of the Son of Man is anything but normal, isn't it? We await the return of the King. And if you're not in the right with the King this morning, then you need to get that sorted out. He could return at any time. And that great separation is coming. Are you ready for that great separation? The answer is right in front of you. Jesus Christ. So don't miss out. Don't turn back. But keep following the Son of Man in the days of the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that not only did Jesus come a first time, but Father, thank you that he will return. And Father, we pray that we would be ready for his return. Father, if we're not a believer here this morning, if we haven't put our trust in the Lord Jesus, Father, pray that you would help us to see the urgency as that day approaches. And Father, if we have, we pray that you would help us not to turn back. Father, not to uh, put our eyes onto other things, but to keep following you. Keep going in the difficult days uh, that we live in and not be seduced by the normality of life into thinking that everything is basically okay. Father, help us to follow you with all that we have, all our soul, heart and strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.